You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Very pumped up to have my good buddy Daniel Jeremiah here for episode two of the Helipod. DJ, as I'm sure most of you are well aware, the lead draft analyst uh, at NFL Network, replacing Mike Mayock, former NFL scout, former college quarterback. Uh, so there's a lot of stories there that we're going to get to. But first, DJ, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the uh, draft, if that's okay with you, since sure. I know you really haven't doing much draft talk at all the last week or two. <laughs> Dude, this has been the craziest run-up to a draft, man. Like, if you really think about it, you know, with what's going on in the world, like, this is the sports story, and it has been the sports story for, you know, over a month. And normally, during this time of the year, you're talking about, you know, baseball is underway. We're talking about the NBA playoffs. And then, oh, yeah, here comes the draft, and the draft ends up being a big event, and it gets a lot of attention. But this is the only show in town right now. So we've had a, a huge buildup to this event, and it's going to be different. Uh, with the way it's all set up, everybody's going to be at home. Uh, but it's going to be fun, man. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I think it's going to be awesome. And you're right. It, it's the only show in town right now. It's going to be the most watched NFL draft, I think, in history. It's going to be fully virtual. There's not going to be any players walking across the stage. We have to social distance. No bro hugs from the commissioner. He's going to be in his basement. You guys are going to be broadcasting from home. There's going to be 58 prospects that are going to take part virtually as well. The NFL has sent these guys cameras and little draft kits full of gear and swag from uh, the NFL sponsors. And the most interesting thing to me, DJ, and obviously uh, what's going to affect you the most is the fact that this is a joint broadcast with ESPN this year. It's going to be on ABC, ESPN, and NFL Network. One, one of my buddies asked me, he said, how's that going to work? with all of you NFL network guys, isn't this kind of like uh, the Jets and the Sharks on West Side Story? I mean, you're, you're sleeping with the enemy here. I said, you know, it's really not. Daniel specifically knows all of these guys and gets along with them so well. So is this something you're looking forward to, DJ? Or when you heard about it, we're like, oh man, I kind of enjoyed our own, our own broadcast. I think it's mixed because I love the people that we get to work with, not only on camera at NFL Network, but all of our producers that we've, we've worked together. You, we all know the same guys and they're great guys. And so there's a comfort level there and I'm very proud of what we've been able to put on air before I got there and, then, and while I've been there. So on that side of it, you kind of bummed we can't have the whole group together. But the other side of it is it's going to be unique. It's a great opportunity for me, as you mentioned, to work with a bunch of buddies at ESPN. And it's very similar to scouting to me because during my scouting career, people would be like, oh, you know, so you and like the, you, know, you work for the Ravens. So you and the Steelers scouts must hate each other. I'm like, nah, it's just some of my best friends. Like we, we see each other on the road. We see each other in, in combines. Um, it's a very tight knit fraternity. So I've known I've known Mel Kuyper since I was in college. So I've known him for over 20 years. Wow. I've known Chris Mortensen longer than that. Um, you know, and all those guys, I know Wingo and, and Booger. I worked with Lewis Riddick with the Philadelphia Eagles. So, um, you know, Todd McShay has been a friend for a long time. So in some ways it feels, and I don't, I'm not putting myself in their company, but it feels like an all-star game where you're just kind of all in the same industry, all kind of coming together and joining forces. I, I can't wait. I, it's going to be, 
tremendous when things get started Thursday at eight o'clock. That's the first round ESPN, NFL network, and ABC all going to have coverage. Then Friday at seven are going to be rounds two and three. And then Saturday uh, starting at noon, we're going to see the uh, middle and the end of the draft rounds four through seven. What'd you think about Kevin Colbert's idea to extend the draft to 10 rounds since he, he says that signing undrafted free agents is going to be a little bit more of a circus this year. Obviously not going to happen, but what did you think when you heard that proposal? Well, I was laughing, first of all, because one of my buddies with the team, as a scout, had sent me this idea like a month ahead of time. I was like, if this thing goes the way they're talking about it going, you know, when this, all this had just started, maybe a couple weeks before Kevin said it, he's like, they ought to extend it. So when Kevin went out there, he's like, dude, he's stealing, he's stealing my idea. Colbert stole my idea. <laughs> uh, so I was laughing. But I'm like, I, I don't think it's going to happen just because it's too complicated to get it through the union and to agree on that. But it is going to be a little helter-skelter after the draft. So um, I think it would make sense, you know, logically, but I just think in terms of getting that approved and having the Players Association sign off on it would have been difficult because really if you're a player and you're, you know, and you're an agent and your guy does not get picked in the first seven rounds, I would rather have him get a chance to choose which team he goes to as a college free agent than to extend it, you know, to 12 rounds. And then he's going to get picked where it might not be as advantageous an opportunity to make the team. So, you know, a lot of times you'll hear guys say, you know, I know people want to say they were drafted, but you're better off being a free agent than a seventh round pick. As a free agent, you get to choose them. They don't choose you. And you can kind of cherry pick the right opportunity. Well, and that's certainly that's not unique to this year. I think every year, uh, if you're going to be a late round pick, probably more advantageous to be a free agent. You know, you had a great quote earlier. I, I believe it was on one of the shows um, on NFL Network or perhaps your podcast, uh, Move the Sticks, if you don't listen to it, just a great treasure trove of information. But you called this a doubles draft. Yeah. You know, you can't swing for the fences in this draft because there weren't pro days. You didn't get to really peel back all the layers of the onion in terms of scouting these prospects like you normally do. So you're not swinging for the fences. You just want to put somebody on base in scoring position and have a nice, solid draft. Do you think every team – is going to be more risk averse or is that just going to be certain general managers? I think the majority of them are going to be risk averse. You know, there's always going to be people out there are going to look at that as an opportunity and say, man, we can get value, you know, taking a little bit of a risk here because, you know, if this guy had been able to go through the whole process and have a pro day and get a, get a good medical, um, you know, he would have gone higher. So there's some that might be a little more risky, but I think for the most part, the GMs that I talk to, have said, this is, we're trying to eliminate the ifs, you know, well, if this guy can stay healthy, well, if this guy, you know, can learn better than we think, um, you know, if this guy can really run, I don't even know if this guy can really run. He's a corner. We don't have a 40 time on him. Um, you're trying to eliminate as much of that as you can and just say, okay, these are guys, we have the information we need. We know that he's wired correctly. We know that he's healthy. Um, we know that he can learn because he's, you know, we've had a chance to visit with him at the combine. Um, so those are the guys I think you're going to see elevated in this draft. And that's why, you know, I use that word doubles, and that's straight from Ozzie Newsom. And he used to say that all the time. You know, hey, guys, we can – it's okay to hit doubles. You can't strike out. So if you're going to go in the first round and you're swinging for the fences and you strike out, that's when you really set your organization behind, man. Those guys have got to be at least steady, solid starters. If You know, not going to be superstars. That's okay. And that's what's going into the mind of a team or several teams who perhaps could be drafting to a tongue of Aloha, right? This is – this guy – had an amazing career. And if it weren't for the injuries, of which there are many, you know, yeah. both ankles, a hip, he broke his finger, reportedly broke his wrist twice as well. He, he, he sprained his knee. 
This is the best example to me, DJ, of a risk-reward player, obviously the most polarizing player in the draft. And this is topic 1A and 1B. You know, in the old sports page days, it's, it's above the fold and it's below the fold. Who do you think is going to make a play for Tua? And do you think the Dolphins could just sit there at five and not move up and still land them? Well, first of all, the fact that you did the newspaper analogy means that that little patch of gray in your beard is there's more where that came from. You're definitely there's some coloring going on there uh, with the newspaper reference. Uh, look, to me, when I look for teams that, that make sense, I still go back to five and six. And, and I'll give you the two reasons. So you're the Miami Dolphins. You trade Laramie Tunsil, who's a top three tackle. You trade Minka Fitzpatrick, who's probably one of the three best free safeties in the league. So you've, you've moved on from these assets to get picks. What are you getting picks for? So you can go back and get more tackles and more safeties and, you know, more guys that try and replace the great players that just left. No, you did all that because you want to go get the quarterback that's going to help turn your team around. And I think Tua has that type of ability. Obviously there is some risk there with the medical, um, but that's why it makes sense for the, for the dolphins. And then right behind them at six with the chargers, um, Phillip rivers moves on. I know uh, Anthony Lynn loves Tyrod Taylor and he's going to give him an opportunity this year. That to me makes this even a, a better fit for Tua because you don't have to rush him. You can let him get 100% healthy, take your time in a year where we're not going to have much of an off season. It's going to be difficult for these rookies to get on the field anyway. So to me, that makes a lot of sense for them and a team trying to get, you know, kind of a face of the franchise type player. In Southern California, too, is a, he's going to be a name brand, and he creates some excitement around a bunch of other talented players they have on that roster. So those two teams, uh, for me, still make a lot of sense, even in his, his present health situation. Do the Dolphins take that risk? You know, it's interesting. Chris Greer is – he was mentored by Bill Parcells, and Bill Parcells has this checklist for quarterbacks. Mm -hmm. Now, it's a little old-fashioned, I think, in this day and age because it, it might be outdated, but – they have to have a good touchdown uh, to interception ratio, complete 60% of their passes, start 30 games, win 23, graduate from college, be a three-year starter. May, is that a reason that perhaps he could be leaning towards taking Justin Herbert as opposed to Tua? Yeah, I think there's some theory there. And you think about, you know, Mike Tannenbaum has been the biggest Justin Herbert supporter there is. Tannenbaum obviously connected with the Dolphins organization, connected to Bill Parcells, uh, you know, connected to Chris Greer. So there's, you know, some, that's a theory that's kind of floating around out there is that, that connection with Justin Herbert. Uh, but I also think when you're talking about three-year starters now, um, that particularly, that, that part of that equation for Coach Parcells, it's a different year. It's a different era. You know, it's just totally different now. These guys all come out after three years. Uh, we've seen, you know, for instance, the last uh, two first overall picks, and it's going to be three in a row with Joe Burrow, we're going to have three quarterbacks in a row that were transfers. You know, didn't even make it at their first stop. Had to go somewhere else. Kyler Murray, one-year starter, first overall pick, rookie of the year. Um, so I just think it's a, different, it's a different era in that regard. So I think some of that checklist has to be altered. Um, but, you know, if you're going back, I've said this with Justin Herbert. I like Justin Herbert. I don't love him. But if you went back 15 years ago, that's, that's the guy that everybody's looking for, right? The big, strong uh, pocket passer who's actually an underrated athlete, but uh, somebody that kind of cuts the image of the quarterback who's been, uh, you know, played four years in college and has won football games, high character, highly intelligent. He checks a lot of those boxes. But, you know, from a playmaking standpoint, there's just a little something missing there. So you would go to if you were the Dolphins? 
I would, and I don't, you know, I, I don't know if you know this, but I do not have a medical staff here at the Move the Sticks uh, <laughs> offices. Uh, so I do not have a doctor to rely on to give me a good uh, medical info. But assuming that the doctors are okay with it, I, I think he's just a better football player. Do you think the Dolphins can sit tight at five, or do you think they have to move up because perhaps the Chargers could try to leapfrog them, which would take a handful of second-round picks, um, you know, if history is any indication there. I guess the comp is the Darnold trade in 2018 when the Jets moved from six to three, and they gave up those three additional second-rounders. Yeah, I don't, I don't see it happening. I, I've been kind of changing my tune on this as we come down the home stretch. I thought for a long time, man, it makes sense for the Chargers – uh, and the Dolphins to kind of have a, a contest there of who can get up to three. And I do know Detroit wants out of three, but I think both teams have a comfort level with both quarterbacks. So when you're in that situation, you're saying, okay, if we're comfortable with Tua, we're comfortable with Herbert, I'm not, we're going to get one of them. So I'm not going to trade you know, assets that we need to fill in the rest of our roster to go up there and get a quarterback who's coming off of a hip injury or a quarterback who, you know, maybe isn't the, the perfect player in Justin Herbert. So I think both those teams – stick and pick. Uh, I don't think we're going to see a trade up. I'm, I'm just so fascinated by where Tua is going to end up because I don't know what's riskier for the Dolphins. I don't know if it's riskier for them to draft Tua or riskier for them to pass Tua. We saw the last quarterback they passed on because of injury, obviously Drew Brees, Drew Brees and we saw yeah. how that changed the, the face of the National Football League. Um, th that's that's going to be the question that's going to be answered early in the draft. And I can't see, I can see being comfortable with both guys but if I'm drafting my franchise quarterback in the top five or the top six, I want to love the guy yeah. that I'm getting. And There's I, something to that. You know, I, I, the, other, the other question I have in terms of quarterbacks, and then I'll, I'll move off that, but that seems to be we're, we're so obsessive compulsive when it comes to quarterbacks in the draft. Jacksonville at nine and the Raiders at 12. Do you think that one of those teams could make a surprise quarterback pick when they basically stated publicly they won't? Obviously, the Raiders have Mariota as a backup now, and, and you know, the Jags uh, seemingly set at quarterback. Well, I mean, I can tell you I don't think Jacksonville will, but I don't have to go too far back in history to tell the story about how Dave Caldwell, their GM, who's been a friend of mine since we were scouting, you know, the West Coast together back in the early 2000s. I've known him for, you know, 17 years. And prior to the Blake Bortles draft, we had talked, you know, just about every week. We talked about all kinds of players. We never talked about Blake Bortles. So that came out of left field when they, when they took And that's Blake. your guy. That's my guy. So I, I kind of told the story on, uh, on a couple shows that the day after the draft because we were talking the night before the draft, and I was asking him about different players. We're kind of going through it. And I finally got to Blake Bortles, you know, and I thought Bortles was going to go in the 20. So maybe it was a trade up, you know, trade back into the bottom of the first round type situation. So I said, what do you think on Bortles? And he goes, hold, hold on, DJ. I got to I got to take this call, man. I got a call. I got to go. <laughs> so he fails on the phone call. So I, I called him the, the day after the draft, you know, before night two. And I said, dude, was there anybody on the other line? He's like, no, man, I just didn't. I didn't want to lie to you. So I just I had to just get out of there. So he never said anything about That's him. That's amazing. So I don't think I, – I think they really like Minshew. I, I think they're going to give him um, more opportunity here in this coming season. But, uh, you know, so I don't expect them to do it. The Raiders – I'll give you a scenario where I could see it with the Raiders. I don't, I don't see them taking Jordan Love. So the guy would be Herbert if Herbert were to be there, say, when they pick at 12. Okay. I don't think they would trade up for him. But if he got to 12, I could see that happening. And the way that could happen is it would go like this. Um, you would have uh, – Tua go five to the Dolphins, okay? 
So then it turns out, you know, maybe the Chargers are a little bit higher on Tua than Herbert, and they have another option, which is they can take Isaiah Simmons, the, the talented safety slash linebacker from Clemson, who's going to be a great fit with Derwin James with all that speed and athleticism to deal with Pat Mahomes and, and what you have to deal with with the Chiefs and the AFC West. So they could go Simmons, then maybe they circle back for somebody like a Jalen Hurts in the second round is, is kind of the quarterback option. But if they do that, then I don't think there's anybody that's going to take a quarterback between the Chargers and the Raiders at 12, which if Herbert were there at 12, I would think the Raiders, even with Carr and Mariota, there would be, uh, there'd be some, some thought there to take him. So that would be a fascinating scenario. The Raiders, Dolphins, Jags, 49ers, and Vikings, all with two first-round picks. That's five teams. I don't remember the last time that that has uh, come into play. Out of those teams, which one do you feel like has the most pressure to improve in this draft? Well, it sounds crazy because they're the best of those teams, but I'll say the Niners because, I mean, they are a whisker away from a trophy. I mean, they right. were right there. They had that game. And one of the fascinating things to me is that game turned on the one play, you know, third and 15. And as much attention as we give to Mahomes, which he's incredible, you know, taking a nine-step drop from the shotgun, which I've never seen before in my life, uh, throwing, throwing that ball to Tyree Kill. But Tyree Kill's speed is what made that happen. There's right. 10 yards of separation. His speed changed the game on the biggest play of the game. And on that sideline, watching the ring get removed from his finger was Kyle Shanahan. And now you're picking at 13 and Henry Ruggs from Alabama is out there and you can get your own version of Tyreek Hill. That would be fascinating to me to give them some more firepower offensively. I wouldn't be surprised if they came back later in the first round and doubled up on offense. You know, maybe even a guy like Cole Komet and you have Cole Komet, you have packages of Cole Komet, uh, you have your big time tight end and Kittle, you have Juszczyk, the fullback. So now you can just maul people in the run game and then you can put the speed out there and run by people. So I just think there's pressure on them to be this close to a championship uh, to put the finishing touches on that roster. Yeah, I can see some pressure on, on the Vikings too. In turn, that's probably the second best team on that list. And Rick Spielman, he's drafted well. He's drafted yeah. 16 pro bowlers in 14 years, but in year three, of Kirk Cousins, you know, you've gone eight, seven, and one, you've gone 10 and six. He signs that contract extension. They lose some pieces on defense. There's, there's a championship window there in my mind, DJ, that, you know, two to three years, you, you got to, that those windows don't stay open as long as you think they do. You remember the Seahawks, we thought that would be there forever, but it wasn't. No, no doubt. Uh, to me, it's, it's kind of a strike now time for them. And, you know, they, they extended Kirk. So they wanted to, or Kirk to get him going. So, um, I just think when you've invested in the future there with Kirk Cousins that you're going to go ahead and try and get him some more help um, offensively with Diggs gone. I think they're going to go a corner. I think they're going to get a corner and a wide receiver in the first round. It's just going to come down to which order that they go. Um, and we'll see when that run on wideouts happens. But, uh, you know, they've, they're right there, man. They're right there. And to me, when they re-signed Kirk Cousins, it said, okay, we're going to try and make this push right here. You sounded like Bruce Allen there for a minute, calling him Kurt instead of. Kurt. I know, I know. I don't know why that where Kurt came from. I actually <laughs> called, I actually called Rhett. This is the, the sign that I'm not getting much sleep. I called Rhett Lewis, our buddy, on a path of the draft. Sure. I didn't believe it. I called him Brett, and we came. I didn't even hear it. And then we we come we uh, finish the show, and I get a call from uh, from Yunt, from Ryan Yunt, our producer. He goes, "You realize you called Rhett Brett? I call him Brett. Why would I call him Brett?" He sends me the link. I watch it. Sure enough. Yeah, I breaded him. I definitely uh, breaded him. 
Hey, it happens. I can't tell you how many times something has rolled off my tongue. And then at the end of the segment during the commercial, a producer said the same thing. And I'm like, I, there's I no way I said that. What are you talking about? Yeah. It happens all the time, dude. Come on. Hey, the deepest wide receiver draft ever. How many guys do you have with uh, graded in the top three rounds? Sure. I can tell you right now in the top 100 this year. So if you figure there's what, 96 picks in the top three rounds, something like that. Yeah. Uh, I have, I have 18 of my top 100 players are wide receivers. To give you a context on that, on average over the last five years, 11 eight receivers go in the top 100 picks. Last year, which was an unbelievable year, we had 13 wide receivers go in the top 100. Now, I don't think all 18 of these guys are going to come off the board in the top 100 picks, but they're worth top 100 picks. So that speaks to the depth that we have. That's, that's incredible. And you think that run on receivers is going to start maybe in that 11, 12 range with the, with the Jets and the Raiders? It's wide receiver row. Like I've been asked, you know, people uh, that are Niners fans, or sorry, that are uh, Denver Bronco fans, um, and you hear it from Eagles fans. Like, are we going to be – is the fourth receiver going to be there? Are we going to be able to get one of those top four receivers? And I'm like, I'll tell you after pick 11. Because right. if the Jets take one, then you could be looking at Jets, Raiders, Niners, Broncos, like – Boom, they're gone. Uh, wow. So that's why it's going to be fascinating. And then the Reds, if the Jets take a, uh, a tackle, then all of a sudden you feel a little bit better about at least one of those guys kind of falling down. Well, and the Giants could take a tackle. I mean, there's a lot of talented tackles in this draft too. I mean, you're going to see, what, probably four of those guys go in the top 12 or so? Yeah, we're going to see the tackle run early. Then it's going to be followed by the wide receiver run. And then I think once we get into the back end of the first round, I think you might see a run on corners. So it's funny how that it kind of all clumps together when you have teams with similar needs picking right by each other. Give me some skinny here. Give me something you've heard from a, from a team uh, about a player or, or a strategy in the last couple of days that surprised you. Well, this isn't from the team directly, but there's, you know, some theories going around when talking to different teams. And I thought I bought into this one a little bit. I thought it made sense, which was Tampa. I've been saying Tampa makes sense for the tackle, right? Go get another tackle uh, to help protect Tom Brady. And then somebody brought up a great point to me. He said, Tom Brady's been doing this for 20 years. What has he always had? He's always had a premier slot receiver. So even as good as they are with Godwin and with Mike Evans, and I know Godwin has played in the slot some, he's been productive in there. But to go get Justin Jefferson, who's the best slot receiver in this draft, he's outstanding. And give Brady that little uh, insurance policy in the middle of the field to go with the tight ends that they have and then have Evans on one side, Godwin on the other. You talk about making your Hall of Fame quarterback comfortable that would be fun to watch. You know, I've, I've been kind of advocating for them maybe in the second round to get a Clyde Edwards, Alaire, the running back yep. from LSU to give them that pass catching back. But I think they need at least a combination, right? You got to either have that back or that slot receiver. That's going to be able to be his check down guy. It's going to be a quick, easy completions for him. That's just the way he's played the game for so long. I think you, you have to have that guy on this roster and they don't. But can that guy be a rookie? I think this kid, I think this kid's polished, man. Uh, Justin Jefferson can right. do it. Yeah, he's, I mean, he just wore, he wore people out in the slot at LSU. Catches everything. He's great on third down, great in the red zone. Uh, you know, he had Jerry Sullivan that coached him down there, helped him down there. And Jerry's been around the NFL game for a long, long time. He really vouches for this kid. So, uh, now I think he can do it as a rookie. Defensively, you have Chase Young as your number one player in the draft, period, regardless yeah. of what side of the ball you play on. And you do believe this is a no-brainer for the Redskins at number two. You, you take Chase Young, who, by the way, is the hometown kid, and yeah. you just 
pencil in six or seven Pro Bowls. Yeah, I don't, I don't trade off of franchise quarterbacks, and I don't trade off of uh, franchise edge rushers. I mean, it's the second most important position in football. Most important is the guy that throws it. The second most important is the guy that can hit him. And this guy's elite at that. And I don't think those guys come around all the time. And you also look at the track record, what Ohio State's put out on the D-line and how well those guys have played. Yep. We look at the Bosa boys. And this kid's uh, he's special. So I don't care what they're offering me. I'm not trading off that pick. Last four edge rushers or defensive ends at number two. Von Miller, Chris Long, Julius Peppers, LeVar Arrington. So that, that's, that's pretty a pretty good. strong list. Yep, that's a, that's strong a really list. strong list. And, and by the way, the Redskins haven't drafted a first-team All-Pro player since 1999, so they could take wow. that guy and get out of town. Wow. That's, that's crazy. Hold on, hold on. Let me, let me get my – I see this is – I'll take you behind the scenes here. So this is what I do for, uh, for teams. So when we're, like, on the clock, if you can kind of see it here. Oh, so it's I your have, little board. Yeah, so I just create a little board so I don't have to be thumbing through a bunch of, uh, of notes here. So, like, for the Redskins, that's a great – that's a good nugget. That's a healthy contribution. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fact check it. Don't get me wrong. I don't fully trust it. <laughs> but you're going to give me one more time on that? As you should. The Redskins have not drafted a first-team All-Pro player since 1999. I, you know what? I just might watch the entire draft from start to finish and not even take a coffee, beer, or pee break just to see if you use that nugget. Oh, it's gonna get. I just wrote it down. It's in here. Yeah, I love it. It's, it's that, so, so we talked about this uh, last week. That board, relatively similar, obviously not identical, to one that you would use to call a game. Yeah, and this is this is one of the cool things. And I would give uh, free unsolicited advice here to anybody that's that's uh, in a new profession or in a new role. Um, so last year was my first year as kind of the lead guy after Mayock took the the uh, Raiders gig. So I've always, you know, kind of done, the, done it one way in terms of I would have all my notes are in my computer. Mayock is a paper guy. I, I had everything in my computer, which you, you kind of expect. It's a generational thing. There. Mike's old. Uh, but, but then I would have my team stuff would be in like a packet, right? So I would have 32 pages, one page for each team. Well, and you could kind of put it in order in the first round of when they pick, but then trades happen and then this team's on the clock you can't be on TV trying to thumb through your packet to find the team and, and what they do. And so I, after the draft was over, um, I wrote down and uh, Jerry Madeline actually gave me this idea who does, works with the talent at the network, you know, Jerry, and he, he sure. said, write notes of stuff that you would like to do differently next year. So right after the draft, I wrote down one of the things like I've got to figure out a better way to access my team information. I have all my player stuff on my computer. That's easy, but the team stuff's difficult. And so I started thinking, well, you know, I call these charger games and you have everything on, you know, 53 players on each side uh, on one board. So why don't I just create a kind of a smaller board with all the teams? I mean, you just put the NFC on one side by division and the AFC on the other. And then when there's a trade, the, the most movement I'll have to do on the desk is just flip the card over. Brilliant. See, you're always learning, man. Just it just shows how learning. dumb I am that I didn't think of it ahead of time. That's all that is. <laughs> Hey, I have to ask you, did you get, you got the box uh, that Viore sent you with all that gear? I, I did. I'm stoked because uh, not only do I love the clothes, but the shorts, I run in them, but they also double as my swim trunks. So they uh, dual purpose, high, high quality. I appreciate that. I, I love them uh, because I can sleep in them and then I can roll out of bed, walk my puppy in the morning and then wear them the rest of the day. And there's not many things you can wear to bed and wear the entire day. Yeah. Uh, Viore shorts are one of them. The shorts are unbelievable. 
The shirts are fantastic. Uh, I've been wearing their gear, DJ, as you know, for a long time. And all of you out there listening or watching this can wear their gear too and get 20% off. Just go to vioriclothing.com slash helipad. That's V-U-O-R-I clothing.com slash helipod crazy soft material some of the best joggers that i own i love their hoodies i'm wearing one of them now it's not too thick it's not too thin it's just right vioriclothing.com slash helipod check it out now i promise i'm i'm kind of a gear hound dj i know you are as well so i was uh, i was pumped to hear that you uh enjoyed the clothing as much as i do no it's fantastic i appreciate you sending that my way it'll get used i guarantee it of course. All right. I want to ask you a couple more draft questions. Then we want to get to know DJ a little bit, a little bit and then we're going to let you run. I really appreciate the time. Um, let me ask you about two guys. I called their games and they were the best players on the field when, when I did their games. Okay. Harrison Bryant, I think is the best tight end in the draft. Uh, a zero star recruit coming out of Georgia. And then he turns into the Mackey award winner, has over a thousand receiving yards. What do you think about Harrison Bryant out of FAU? Very explosive. I, I thought he played even faster than he tested. I want to say he ran in like the mid four sevens, um, mm-hmm. but he plays faster than that. He's a little bit undersized, but he's a competitive blocker. So he needs to get a little bit stronger. But in scouting, we kind of look and see, does this guy want to do it? Is he willing to do it? We can work with him, get stronger, teach him on the technique side of things. But you're drafting him, to my opinion, to, to stretch the field. You know, that's what he does best. That offense, you saw him get a chance. They ran a bunch of those, like, fake bubble screens. He kind of stock blocks for a count, and then he'll release up the seam. And he's really good after the catch. So he's my – gosh, I can pull it up right now. He's my third tight end. So I have him behind Cole Komet and Adam Troutman. Komet from Notre Dame and Troutman from Dayton. Um, they're just bigger. There's bigger guys that can play more as inline wide tight ends. I think this kid's – at least initially, you're going to play him flexed out or off the ball mm-hmm. um, until he just gets a little bit bigger, a little bit stronger. Yeah, six five. They list him, I think, at two forty one, two forty two. Yeah. When I saw him, I think he played closer to two thirty. Yeah, um, I think I think at the combine, the story I was told was that he weighed in at about two forty three and he ran at about two thirty five because he ran, <laughs> ran a couple of days later. He got that water in him though. He got that that water in him right before the weigh in. It's amazing guys can fluctuate that much. I mean, they're, they're guys that lose 10, 12 pounds, you know, after playing in a game. Uh, another guy I loved, loved this guy, Jordan Brooks, the linebacker for Texas oh, yeah. Tech. Yeah. All he does is make tackles. And boy, does he move out there on the field. He just gets to the ball with a quickness. I, I know he's behind guys like Patrick Queen and Kenneth Murray, but I love Jordan Brooks. Jordan Brooks, so I'm looking at right now. So he, he just missed my top 50. So he's the first linebacker for me outside the top 50. I think he's my 51st or 52nd player in the draft. He's got a chance to go in the first round. It would not shock me at all if a team like Green Bay in the bottom of the first round who has a need at linebacker uh, looked at Jordan Brooks. He's going to go early in the second round. You mentioned the speed, Dan. Like it is, it is sideline to sideline range. Um, you're gonna, they play him actually in the deep middle of the field sometimes, almost like he's a free safety. Um, and he can just run all over the place. He's a great hitter. He's going, to, uh, he's going to need a little bit of time just in terms of being able to kind of – we talk about being able to keep, keep plays, sort, and fill. Uh, that's going to just take a little bit of time. The Big 12 is so wide open. Uh, as you know, you didn't get a chance to do as much of that. So, right. at the end of the day, it's a, it's a passing league, and you need linebackers that can run and cover, and this kid can do that. Yeah, I think he'd be a great fit with the, uh, with the Rams. The Cowboys could use a player oh, yeah. like him. I think anybody could use a player like him. All right, DJ, uh, let, let's get to know DJ a little bit here. Um, All-state quarterback in San Diego. 
we talk about rookie years on, on the helipod here, and you've had seemingly a hundred different rookie years. You start your college career at Northeastern Louisiana, and then you move on to App State. Let's start with Northeastern Louisiana. How did you end up there? Yeah, it's kind of a crazy story. So grew up in San Diego, um, threw for a zillion yards, but it was at a little bit smaller school and kind of fell through the recruiting cracks. Um, and then the San Diego Union Tribune at the time wrote an article about me as kind of the, the county's all-time leading passer, but exciting day had come and gone. I hadn't signed with anybody. So I kind of wrote like, it's kind of weird. This kid hasn't signed on, blah, blah, blah. Well, the Chargers at the time had a defensive coordinator named Bill Arnsparger. Sure. And the name sounds familiar. It's because he was a defensive coordinator of the 72 Dolphins, the, the last, the only undefeated team. So he's been a, kind of a legend. He was with the, with the Chargers at that time. Well, his son, David Arnsparger, was a receiver, receiver coach at Northeast Louisiana. So he reads this article, tells his son, there's some quarterback out here, supposed to be pretty good, that hasn't gone anywhere. Do you, you need one? Yeah, yeah, we do. So they start recruiting me. Um, and so it, it, after signing day, I ended up getting offers, you know, from Akron, um, I think it was Montana, uh, a, a couple of different other schools. So Western Illinois was one of them at one point in time, but, uh, that was where, uh, that was where I ended up visiting. And when they, when I went there on the visit, they go, okay, yeah, we're a division one team. You know, we're going to play four SEC teams almost every year. They're independent. There's no league. So you're going to get a chance to play in some of the best venues in college football. Like they don't tell you you're the money game. Like they left that part out. Uh, <laughs> but, but nonetheless, I was like, yeah, this is great. I get to play at, you know, Auburn and Arkansas and Kentucky and Mississippi state, like all these places this is going to be fun. Um, so yeah, that's how I, I ended up going out there. And they sold me on the fact that they chucked the ball. They had Stan Humphreys had played there, going on to play for the chargers, Bubby Brister, Bobby Brister yeah. had played there and went on to play for the Steelers and everybody he played for. And then Doug Peterson, who's the head coach of the Philadelphia Eagles had played there. So they've had three NFL quarterbacks come out of this kind of obscure division one school. So they, uh, they sold me and it was either go freeze my butt off in Akron, Ohio, or go deal with the mosquitoes in Louisiana. And I chose the mosquitoes. So, so you started there and then you end up transferring to App State. How did that come to fruition? Yeah, so I redshirt at Northeast Louisiana for a year. Then I start my second year. I think I started like the last seven or eight games. But we were, gosh, it was so dispiriting because we were, we were independent. So there's nothing to play for. You have no conference championship to play for. We went five and seven that year. We beat, you know, Central Florida with Dante Culpepper. We beat Hawaii. We got uh, – Tim Couch handed us our lunch uh, in the Kentucky game. I can promise you that. But uh, anyways, we go five and seven, and I'm like, "There's no, what do you play for here?" Um, and so it just wasn't. I didn't feel great about the fit, and I just, it just wasn't the right spot. So I decided I was going to transfer. And at that point in time, I I took my tape, you know, from some of like two or three of my games. My dad actually helped me out with this, and he sent them to. He printed out the USA Today had the top 25 for one double a, which it was called at that time. Right. And I knew I could transfer and be eligible right away. Cause I didn't really want to sit out. So we sent that video to all 25 teams and I heard back from the majority of them and got offered by several of them. And they ended up coming down to at that time, which was app state. Um, it was Western Illinois. Then that's where they came in. And then the other one was uh, Montana. So those are the three schools I was going to look at. And I went and visited app state and I just absolutely fell in love with it up there had a history of winning, um, just good, tough, hard-nosed football. And it, I love the mountains of North Carolina. It was just beautiful up there. So it, it sold me. That's a pretty area right there around Boone. And so you, you were more of, at App State, you were more of an athletic quarterback. 
Yeah, we threw it at Northeast Louisiana a bunch. And then App State was like G-load option. Like our, our coach who's in the, in the College Football Hall of Fame, Jerry Moore, had come from Nebraska under Tom Osborne. So it was, dude, you're running option. I remember getting up there and uh, <laughs> I get up there. Uh, we go through the first fall. So I kind of knew what we were running at that point in time because I would played and I knew we ran the football a lot. But we get to spring practice and I go into the locker room uh, for the first day of spring. And I go to the equipment guy, I go, hey, uh, uh, Willie T, who's our equipment guy, I go, Willie T, you made a mistake, man. My, my red jersey's not hanging in my locker. You got like a white one there. I got to get my, where's my red jersey? He goes, oh, no, quarterbacks are live here in the spring. I go, what? <laughs> what? A little different. Like, yeah. It's like, no, no, yeah, we, we, you're going to run the ball. Like, you're not, you're getting hit. I was like, you got to be kidding me. I didn't even gear myself up for that. That's crazy. Wow. Well, you had uh... – you had a fine career at App State, and then, and then you got out and you were trying to figure out what you were going to do, and Chris Mortensen had a relationship with your father, right? They knew each other, and, and yep. he helped you. Was it an internship or a job at ESPN? Yeah, so the, I'll give you the backstory there. The, the Super Bowl was in San Diego. I think it was 1997, so this was the Elway win over the Packers, right? Okay. Yep. Um, so Chris Mortensen, I listened to my dad on the radio, and, and over the years, my dad's a pastor. He has a national radio ministry, and uh, so it was a two-week period, right, between the championship game and the Super Bowl, so Chris Mortensen was out in San Diego for a long time. So he goes to, uh, he goes to my dad's church. He comes up after the service introduces himself to my father. Uh, my dad obviously knew who he was. I, you know, I, and I would, I had been in church that day, but I didn't know any of this was going on. So I just come back up to the house for Sunday lunch and Chris Mortensen sitting at the table and I'm like, what the heck is he doing here? Uh, I know who he is. Uh, my dad invited him up for lunch. And so That's awesome. we just, we just kind of hit it off. And I told him I was in, uh, uh, I was in college at the time. And I, I told him, yeah, I've been interested in broadcasting. And so he took note of that. And then, um, so going into my senior year, he said, hey, there, uh, uh, would you like to work on the Orange Bowl, which was the national championship game that year as a, as basically a gopher, you know? And I said, yeah, absolutely. He goes, well, I'll put you in touch with this guy named Jay Rothman, who's going to produce the game. So Jay calls me and uh you couldn't have been nicer and said, Hey, I can't pay for your flight here. I can't put you up in a hotel, but if you can get down to Miami for the week, I'll put you to work. I said, okay. So I paid for my flight down there. I stayed with one of my college teammates, Wayne Smith. Uh, so I stayed at his house and then I went over to the, uh, went over to the, to the orange bowl and I literally went and got people sandwiches. That's what I did. Like I just went and had to go to Publix to the public store uh, where they had sandwiches and I was a gopher for the whole yeah, week. I've been there. So that was, and it was, I loved it. You know, people be like, oh, that's the word. I'm like, you kidding me? Like I'd walk in and out of the stadium and, and get a chance to do whatever they wanted me to do. Uh, I, I had a blast. I think I was in the truck during the game. So I got to see how everything worked behind the scenes. Um, so I didn't think anything of that. I thought it was a one-off experience. I'll put it on my resume. We'll see what happens. Sure. Um, and then the next year, I, well, I graduate in December and I just go work with my dad. I have no job, you know? So I work with my dad that following December. What are you doing with your dad? So he's, I was working in the warehouse. So he has, you know, this national ministry, he's written you know, over a hundred books, has all of his audio tapes at this time. So I was in, in just in the warehouse packaging up orders that people had, had sent in for with books and tapes and CDs. I'd package them up and get them sent out. So it was like not something I really envisioned I was going to be doing with my life at that point <laughs> right. in time. But uh, that's, what, that's what it was. So then we go from December 
all the way to that summer, uh, the following year. And uh, I have no, I mean, this is, I guess this is what I'm gonna do. I'm just gonna work for my dad. I don't know what else I'm gonna do. And then I get a call out of the blue that summer from Jay Rothman. And he says, hey, I just got hired to go from the college side to the NFL side. I'm going to be the new producer of, of Sunday Night Football. Uh, and I want to know if you want to be on my crew. And I was like, yes. Uh, I didn't even yeah. know what I was going to do. I didn't even know what I was going to do. I'm like, yes, I want to do it. So I was a spotter in the booth, um, which is basically just telling people who made the tackle, who missed the tackle, um, just kind of an extra set of eyes up there. I did that for, uh, for two years. And I also, in order to give me some more money, they made me the ENG producer, which is basically I'm in charge of getting the scenics shot. So if folks are watching an NFL game and you're watching a night game and you see uh, the shot of the skyline, you know, this town all live, that's all shot the day or two before at the same right. time. And they roll them in the game. So I know nothing about anything to do with this, but they're like, these two camera guys have been doing this for years. Basically you just got to call the locations and make sure they can get in the door. That's all you have to do. So I had a Frommers, remember those? Oh, of course, like the travel guides? Yes, so I would look it up. Okay, we have the St. Louis this week. So I would look it up and go, okay, we need to go shoot the arch. Um, they have this Fitz's Root Beer Factory, looks kind of cool. So I'd call them, make sure we could go in there and shoot. You know, I think BB King had a, had a place there. Let's, let's go shoot there. So I would just make these phone calls and, uh, and, and do that kind of stuff. I had no idea what I was doing. Hit all, hit all the five most popular spots in each town. Yeah, that's it. You a good spotter, DJ, because we, listen, we've, we've done games together. Yeah. And depending on the level of game, certain games, mostly NFL games and, and big college games, you can travel a spotter. You can yeah. hire your own guy and bring him to the game. Some of the lower level games, you'll get assigned a spotter who could be somebody that works for the athletic department. Let's say it you know, San Diego state or, or, or Idaho state. Um, and the spotter is crucial, especially to the play by play guy calling the game. Were you a good spotter or were you a crappy spotter? Uh, neither. I was an unbelievable spotter. So <laughs> this is the difference though. You're, you're talking about the traditional spotter role and, sure. and you have them in these games for the guys calling the game they created a whole new role for me on this broadcast, which I believe ESPN still has somebody that does this, but at the time there, nobody was doing this. I was a spotter for the cameraman, the director and the producer. Oh. So, so I was on a channel with the cameraman so I could tell them who made the tackle, missed the tackle, who blew the coverage okay. you, know, you can understand the game a little bit. So then when the announcer had said something, they, you know, I was trying to see the same things Joe Theismann would be seeing. Right. So then the cameras could be caught up so they wouldn't be chasing everything all over the place. And they could also then they could get in Mike Patrick's ear. If I had said something about, uh, you know, they only had 10 guys on the field or something like that, then they might, you know, tell him that in his ear. So you had the spotter that was just working with Mike and then I was working with the director and the cameraman. Okay. All right. I, like I can that. tell you one quick story on that though, Dan. Yeah. Give it to me. So, the camera guys are great on these broadcasts. They've been doing it forever. And they were like, they ended up being like good buddies of mine through this process. And we would go shoot these scenics and we would have a bunch of, you know, raw footage that we're in package these things up. So we're in Nashville um, and the waterway there, right? Sure. Shooting, we're shooting some stuff there. And so I'm, I'm bored. I'm like, I'm directing these guys. They're going to shoot whatever they're going to shoot. I'm just riding along in the car. So I was taking rocks and just like throwing them and they would go into the water, right? Just throwing rocks and literally bored out of my mind. So 
the camera guys, they would start, they would start editing and making spoof videos of me that right before the game started, they would put on return so we could watch it. And it was like, it was like DJ's career and they follow the rock, like going up in the air and then coming off all the way down into the water, making a big splash. Um, so that started, that was the first thing that started. Then we started figuring out, uh, I got to figure out a way where I can sneak myself into all these scenic shots. Like if we're shooting the sidewalk in New York city, I would, walking just, down the sidewalk? I would be walking down the sidewalk in between the crowds. It became a running joke of like, where could you find me that I would planted myself in all these scenic shots. Got to keep it fun, man. It's the stuff like that where somebody will say, Hey man, work this word into a broadcast today. Oh, yeah. Work it into a game. We've, we've all, we've all done that at one time or another. I love that. Um, so you do that for a year or two? Two years. Yeah, I did it for two years. Do it for two years. And then you get the opportunity to move into scouting. Yeah, I was doing a Ravens game and uh, was up in the, in the booth. One of the other chores with this job is I had to identify the booth. So if you're watching a game and you see him, you know, we're going to talk about Jerry Jones and then boom, cut to the owner's box. Well, you might know where Jerry Jones is going to sit at a Dallas Cowboy home game. Sure. But to find him quickly with a camera on a road game that you have to cheat. So I would, you find out what, what box he was going to be in. I'd take a piece of paper and I would write like OW or like, no, I would write VO visiting owner. And I would take that little piece of paper and I would tape it right underneath their booth. So the cameras could then just go quickly sort around the stadium, find VO and then show Jerry Jones. So I was there early up in the press box, trying to find my way to, to get all the signs where I needed them. And uh, I ran into a guy named TJ McCrate, who was a scout with the Baltimore Ravens. And he was actually my brother's college roommate. And my brother played at Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. Mm -hmm. And this was his college roommate. And he was scouting for the, for the Ravens. So we struck up a conversation. Uh, he introduced me to Phil Savage, who was there with the Ravens, who was the director of player personnel. And they asked if I had ever thought about scouting. I'm not in a million years. Never don't know what they do. Never thought about it. Nothing. But they kind of explained what you do. And I'm like, okay, this sounds actually this sounds kind of fun. Uh, you, so, yeah, I'm interested. So we go through that season. The season ends. And they call, I think Phil Savage called me and said, hey, um, would you like to volunteer and help us at the Combine? Kind of like it just as an audition. So I'm like, right. I don't know what I'm going to be doing, but sure. So uh, they flew me to Indianapolis. They put me up in a hotel, which I, that was, that's already a win over my first ex professional experience. <laughs> and then uh, my job this week, instead of going and getting sandwiches, my job was to stock the interview room where they interviewed the players with snacks. And my second job was to save seats for the weigh-in, which is like the weigh-in might start at seven. You'd have to be there at 5 a.m. to save seats for your you know, five or six oh. personnel guys. So that's what I did for a whole week. I saved seats. I got snacks. And then um, following that, a couple months later, they called me back and said, hey, would you like to come out and interview for a job? So I flew back out there, interviewed for a job, and ended up getting it. But it's kind of like I think a lot of people have that same similar story, no matter what industry you're in, is that people don't want, it, don't want you to show them you can do the, you know, the important things. They want to say, is this guy willing to do all the, the cruddy stuff that nobody right. wants to do? And then once you do that, it shows that you care a little bit. And that's what kind of opened up all the doors. It's amazing, too. I think all the people who are maybe unfamiliar with what a scout really does and what that life is really like would be surprised to hear, A, how much you're on the road yeah. and how unglamorous the life of especially an entry-level 
NFL scout is. I mean, do you know off the top of your head how many miles you logged in those first couple of years? Oh, gosh. It was unbelievable. I mean, I, I had so many nights where – I had so many times where I would drive straight home from Boise, which would be like 14, 15 hours. I remember getting up. I would drive – I went to a BYU night game, and I wanted to come – I just wanted to get home. I missed my family. I've been gone for, you know, 10 days or two weeks. So the game would end at 10 o'clock at night, and I'd get in my car and drive 12 hours to get home. Um, but you, you were you were gone, you know, over 150 nights a year, maybe closer to 200. Um, it's brutal. It was a it was a tough life. You you work for the Ravens, you work for the Browns, uh, you work for the Eagles. I believe it was when you were with the Browns that everybody got let go. Yep. And and, and is that that's when you started the that move the sticks Twitter handle and the idea of moving into media uh, kind of blossomed. Yeah, because I mean, I had left ESPN to go into scouting because I didn't really envision myself being behind the camera, being a producer, sitting in a truck. Like that was not something, that was the path I was on. And that really wasn't what I wanted to do with my life. So that's why I went into the scouting thing. Um, always, you know, I had some interest in being on camera, but I don't, I'm not, I would have had to go, you know, small market and work my way up as a, you know, as a host or a, you know, a, a sports guy. I would have had to do station. what everybody else does. Know, all all the schmoes do, like me. I would have had to do the, the heli work. I did not want to do the heli work. Uh, <laughs> so, so that just kind of, that, that's not going to happen. Well, get let go by Cleveland. I still have 18 months left of my contract. They owe me money. So I'm like, well, I'm going to get paid for the next 18 months. Um, I got offered a job with another team. I turned it down because I had to offset my contract that I had to work for free, basically. I'm going to get paid the same whether I work or I don't work. Um, and so during this time, I had a conversation with Chris Mortensen. And uh, he said, you know what? You ought, to, you ought to start a Twitter page. And I'm like, that's great. What is Twitter? Like, I don't even know what this is. This is, this is like 2000, uh, 2009, I believe. Uh, 2009, 2010, right at the launch. Right at the beginning. Twitter. Yeah. yeah. So I do, I started a Twitter page. I come up with this handle, move the sticks, which is kind of uh, uh, based off of something that Phil Savage used to always talk about. He used to say in scouting, um, you know, you have so many players you need to watch and so much to do during the course of the year. You got to be self-disciplined. Just if you just continue to advance the ball, if you just advance the ball and get first downs every day, in other words, just do a little bit of work every day. Don't go by where you don't make some progress on what you're trying to get done. So I kind of adapted, okay, let's talk about getting a first down and just kind of being steady with your work and being dependable. And I thought, okay, let's go move the sticks. Like it just, you know, life philosophy of just continue to move the sticks. What's in front of you, get that accomplished and keep going. So I come up with that handle and then I mean, nobody's going to, nobody knows who I am. Nobody's following me on this thing. This is kind of dumb. Uh, um, but then all of a sudden started encouraging his followers to follow me uh, to get uh, input on players that could help him in right. fantasy football and all that. So he kind of helped get, you know, get the, get the thing going for him and kind of built up an audience, which led to a lot of radio interviews, which then eventually led to ESPN, you know, putting me on television and doing a bunch of stuff with them. Uh, ended up doing the draft for them on ESPN news with Dari Noka, uh, which sure. I mean, who doesn't, who doesn't watch ESPN news when the draft is on? I mean, you can watch the real <laughs> broadcast or you can watch it's like, it's Slappy like that. It's like the halftime show at NFL network that, uh, you know, a few people have had to do over the years. Luckily I've never been thrown on that, but oh, yeah. who's watching that instead of the real halftime show. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you, you get into, you, you get some notoriety, I guess you would say on Twitter, you go back and you work for the Eagles for a couple of years. I'm just going to fast forward through that yeah. process. And then you start working at NFL network. They find you and you remember that first time, 
on air and were there were there butterflies like when you're on the playing field oh yeah I mean it was uh it was different I mean the first time I remember uh the first time doing the ESPN stuff in between the the Eagles or between the the Browns and the Eagles the first time I'd ever been on television at all was remotely I was in a studio in Orange County and so that's even more uncomfortable than being on a set with other human beings I'm trying to look into this camera I thought it was okay. I went and watched it later that day. My eyes are darting all over the place. I look like a lunatic. Um, so I'm like, well, that was it. I'm one and done on that. They'll never use me again. I look like a psychopath. Uh, but they called me and gave me some feedback and some pointers. Uh, then it brought me back. I got a little more comfortable. Then with NFL Network, um, I think the first thing I did there, I was on with Rich Eisen. It was during training camp live. And uh, he didn't know me from Adam, you know, so I just sat in there. I'm like, gosh, Rich Eisen here, you know, what am I doing? And just tried, you know, tried to fake my way through it. And, uh, and you get kind of more comfortable as you go along and the, and the opportunities grew. But I had, I think like most of us, I had no idea what I was doing. I, I, I have enjoyed uh, watching you arise um, throughout the media ranks. And um, one, of my, one of my best friends in the business, and this is a guy who, who has – uh, earned everything he has. And DJ, before we let you go, I just got to throw out a couple quick hitters. Yep. Okay. Um, the show that you have been watch, binge watched during quarantine, not that you've had a lot of extra yeah. time, but at some point you got to have a couple of free hours. Is there a show or shows that you'll watch before you go to bed at night? It's funny you say that because every single night, my youngest son, um, my youngest Hayden and I, our tradition that we've started during this quarantine is I get all my work done. He's doing, you know, schoolwork on the computer which he doesn't he can do any time during the day so he can stay up late and sleep in and get his work done so we watch probably two episodes of Brooklyn Nine-Nine before we go to bed every single night and Annie Sandberg is it's just what I need at the end of the day to kind of unwind it's loose it's you don't have to really pay attention it's got some good one-liners it's just a good show so that's been the that's been my go-to yeah, my son, who's 12, he's, he loves to watch Impractical Jokers or okay. any comedy out there. And I've already done Ozark, The Tiger King. I'm getting through Peaky Blinders. And oh one recommendation, DJ, yeah. it, 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 it might be – definitely it's not a kid one, but Yellowstone. It's on the Parallel really? Network. Okay. Foster, excellent TV show. All um, right. I, once the draft gets done, I'm, I've got a lot of catching up to do. Yeah, you'll have, you'll have uh, much more time than you do now. First thing you're going to do when the draft is over is what? I was thinking about jumping in the pool because I'm never going to have another draft where I do the draft from my home office. So I thought, why not just give one of the kids a can? Well, they have their phones. They don't need mine. But just say, as soon as it sign off, whatever I have to do, my last duties there on the draft, sign off, just take the jacket off and then just go cannonball into the pool. Because I'm never going to get to do that again. That's brilliant. No, you have to do that. You have to take advantage of this opportunity. And finally, before we let you go, um, it's been out there that you've been contacted by teams over the years. Uh, at some point, many have said, and I do believe that you're going to be an NFL general manager at some point, whenever that time comes, you're obviously going to be ready for it. Uh, but family is number one. I mean, the only person who involved in the NFL that has more kids than you is probably Philip Rivers. Uh, but, and I, oh, and Kurt, I know the timing Kurt, has to be right. Me. But how, how, how many times a year does a friend with an NFL front office you know, approach you and say, Hey, what do you think? You know, come join us. Yeah. I mean, I would say, you know, loose conversations, nothing concrete, but the idea, you know, probably comes up a couple times a year with buddies, you know, would you, you know, any more thought about this? Would you consider it? And this isn't for general managers jobs. This is for, you know, joining their group. Um, 
And it's just, it's not, I like why, where my life is right now. I like being able to go to all my kids' events. Hopefully the events come back uh, with, the, uh, with the way the world is right now. But I enjoy getting a chance to, to be at all that stuff. So I get a chance to stay in the football world, um, but it doesn't cost me the opportunities to, to see the kids grow up. So maybe down the line, I, I would never close the door on that stuff, but uh, not in the immediate future. Still a young fella, plenty of time for DJ to get back into uh, a football front office. Daniel Jeremiah, lead draft analyst for NFL Network. You can see him each and every day leading up to the draft. And then Thursday, 8 o'clock, that's when the first round starts. ESPN, NFL Network. It's the Jets and the Sharks. Everybody's getting together. It's going to be one heck of a broadcast. The most watched NFL draft in history. The numbers are going to be huge. DJ, Enjoy it, my friend. I know you've been grinding all the way through and all the hard work is going to pay off on uh, those three days of the draft. I look forward to watching you, man. I appreciate you, bud. I appreciate your friendship and uh, it was a lot of fun to catch up. Awesome. Talk soon. Good luck.